Okay, let's take our Bibles and go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We are studying our way through this letter in the New Testament from the Apostle Paul to a brand new church in the city of Thessalonica. We have just, in the first part of this service, just celebrated all that God has done for us in Jesus. Um, And some might wonder what it practically matters. Do those things we've just talked about um, mean anything in in real life? And this morning we're going to talk in this session, because of this text, we're going to talk about work, what the gospel has to do with work, and then we'll talk about sexuality in the next. So uh, God's grace for us in Christ changes everything. It completely redirects our lives and how we see the world and how we live. So last Sunday we talked about true brotherly love. Human beings long for it. We even name cities for it. But it's so hard to find. Yet Jesus said it's supposed to be the most distinguishing mark of his family members is that love for one another. So if we look back in 1 Thessalonians 4, At verse 9, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So when God saves a sinner, he makes that sinner his child, and he gives us spiritual life. And if we're now his child, well, he's also made other people his children. That means we've got a new family in Christ. And so God plants the seeds of brotherly love in our hearts. And then he gives us his spirit, and the spirit works in us, leading us to love one another. So in that sense, we don't have to be directly taught about this. God makes sinners into his forgiven children, and then he teaches them to love one another because Christ has loved us. So then verse 10, For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So they were showing brotherly love. And the surprise here is that it wasn't just to Christians in their own church, but actually to Christians throughout the region. And we'll um, come back to that a little bit later on. Now, the end of verse 10, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. So keep growing in this brotherly love. Look back for a moment to chapter 3 and verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. And then chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And so then again at the end of verse 10, we urge you, brothers, do this, brotherly love, more and more. Keep growing. But it turns out there was a specific area in which they needed to grow. Though God implants love for one another in our hearts and leads us by His Spirit, sometimes we still need specific coaching, specific instruction, even correction to see what it looks like. And so in verse 11, there's something specific that they needed to aspire to. 
See, the end of verse 10 says, to do this more and more, verse 11, and to aspire. Now, we'll see the specific in just a moment and what he's talking about. But it's good to pause there and ask ourselves, what are you aspiring to in your growth as a Christian right now? The word refers to an ambition, a strong desire, something you're excited about, something you're passionate about. So what, what is it that you're, what area of your own growth as a Christian are you really excited about right now, really eager for right now? And if there's not an answer that comes to mind quickly or multiple answers, then that's a reminder to go seek the Lord about that. Lord, where would you have me grow? How would you have me grow? What could I aspire to in, in my growth as a Christian? So, what specific growth in brotherly love did the Thessalonians need to aspire to? Well, the answer unfolds a little bit uh, gradually. I, I picture it in my mind like something wrapped in, in, I don't know, fabric or something, folded over it, and you unfold it once and unfold it again. And when you unfold it the third time, then you, you see it, what specifically you're talking about that. Um, so, that's, that's kind of what happens here in these three phrases that Paul uses Verse 11, and to aspire to, so there are three two phrases, T-O phrases, that follow to aspire. The first is to aspire to live quietly. All right, that is pretty general, a little hard to know what it means. And remember, that's why I said this unfolds in three parts. We don't really see his point till the end. Live quietly probably means don't stir up trouble. Don't be a troublemaker. Something like when parents leave the house and they say, stay out of trouble. Something like that. So Paul's going to have to be more specific, right? Stay out of trouble. Number two, aspire to live quietly. So we're continuing in verse 11. And to mind your own affairs. We say, mind your own business. Now, That's interesting because we know that as Christians, we're actually supposed to not just look out for our own concerns, but for the concerns of others, Philippians chapter 2. We're supposed to be alert to the needs of others and ready to help. So he's not talking here about a self-centered kind of like mind your own business. He probably means something like don't meddle in other people's business. We see the same wording used in that way some other places in the New Testament. Don't be a busybody. Okay? So, first of all, we've got aspire to live quietly. Don't stir up trouble. And then, mind your own business. Don't meddle in other people's business. But do you get the feeling we're still not to the, quite to the point yet? What he's really going after? Okay, so back to verse 11. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. And here's the third one. And to work with your hands as we instructed you. Aspire to work with your hands. Now, he doesn't literally mean everybody has to work with their hands, but he's saying that's a metaphor that means get to work. Aspire to work hard. Ah, so now it kind of starts to make sense, right? Those different pieces come together. Why were they tempted to stir up trouble? Because they weren't busy working. Why were they tempted to meddle in other people's business? because they weren't busy working. Turn with me just a couple pages ahead to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3.
Okay, 2 Thessalonians 3. Let's start reading in verse 6. So this is a letter to the same church. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us, which would mean the teaching about work. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Okay, you see there verse 10 pinpoints the problem, not willing to work. I'm not going to say any more about that passage because we're going to study 2 Thessalonians after we finish 1 Thessalonians. But you can see that that passage confirms what the concern here is. So if we go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, again, verse 11, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to, to get to work, to work with your hands as we instructed you. So in a minute, I want us to consider more about this, why they might have struggled to work. But for now, let's go on to verse 12. So that, okay, so he's going to give a couple of the reasons why. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So the first reason why, and there are other reasons besides these two, but as he teaches this church, the first reason why they should aspire to hard work is so that they will walk properly before outsiders, which means so the people who aren't Christians uh, will will see something healthy and right here instead of something that is jarring and not right for somebody who professes to follow Christ. Now, we understand there are many things we can do as Christians that might make people upset. If we, if we stand for the truth or if we do what's right, they may get angry at us. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about a non-Christian who looks at a Christian and sees laziness, meddling in other people's business, sticking his nose in where it doesn't belong, taking advantage of the generosity of others. You say you're a Christian, but you're obviously a lazy bum. What's up with that? That's what he's talking about. Even though that non-Christian doesn't really understand true brotherly love, like we talked about last week, even they know there's something wrong with this picture. A lazy person who's just taken advantage of other people. First Peter chapter 2 says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. First Timothy 3.7 says that a pastor must be well thought of by outsiders. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, Don't offend Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So again, we're not talking about the ways the world will hate you because you follow Christ faithfully and do what's right. We're talking about the ways we can blow our testimony if the world sees we're not really living like a Christian. And laziness can be one of those things. So that's the first reason in verse 12. Then the second reason is so that you be dependent on on no one. Wow, that's thought-provoking. Because one of the things we talk about all the time as Christians is the importance of dependence. <laughs> like not this arrogant, I can do it myself attitude, but, but dependence. And we know that God's Word teaches us 
that we can depend on one another. Paul helped collect funds to provide relief for the Christians in Jerusalem. The church is supposed to, like Paul taught Timothy, the church is supposed to take care of believing widows who don't have anybody else to care for them. In Acts chapter 2, when the church just first began, those, those Christians were eagerly giving to help provide for one another. So there are times in our lives when we're going to need the help of our brothers and sisters practically and finance, financially. It might help because of an accident or because of a job loss or disease or old age or disability or so many things. But any of us could suddenly find ourselves in great need and need our brothers and sisters to, to help us in that crisis. But that's, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking here about personal responsibility, the, the healthy, honorable kind of independence that says, if the Lord allows, and if the Lord gives me the health and the strength and the circumstances to do it, then I want to be able to work hard and provide for myself and even be able to help provide for others. Remember what Paul says to those who used to steal. This is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, we are dependent on the Lord for the health and strength to do that, right? It is God who keeps our hearts beating and our bodies going and gives us those opportunities. But it should be the desire of our heart. Lord, please let me work hard to provide for myself and my loved ones and even be able to help others. Um, One Bible translator uh, or J.B. Phillips, who, who has really just an excellent kind of paraphrase of the Bible, he calls this honorable independence. And I think that's really helpful because there is such a thing as dishonorable independence, right? Dishonorable independence says, I'm never going to admit I need anything. I'm never going to accept help from anyone else. Or I'm so strong and I'm so tough that I'll always be able to provide for myself. I'll never need anybody else. That's just arrogance, Our health and our strength and our savings and our job can be gone in a moment. So dishonorable independence says, I'll never accept help. I don't need anybody else. Honorable independence says, if the Lord allows and gives me strength and health and the circumstances to do it, I want to be able to work hard and provide for myself and my loved ones and and other people too that might be in need. Okay, so we've worked through our text now, verses 11 and 12. And so, just a quick review, we've seen that the overall theme is brotherly love. Work is love. The command is to grow in brotherly love more and more. The one specific area that they should especially aspire to is to grow in the area of hard work. And two of the reasons for that are to maintain a right testimony with non-Christians and to demonstrate an honorable independence. Remember again that the most important thing for us to remember about this passage is that brotherly love is the overall theme. Work is love in in God's kingdom, in God's world. In God's creation, the way he designed human life, work is an expression of love. Hard work is a means of loving others, and that's why laziness is actually sinful because it's a failure to love others as God called us to. And therein, it's also a failure to love God. Now, I, um, 
I want us to consider some of the reasons why we might struggle to work hard. And I'm going to consider both some general reasons, some reasons that may have to do with like our society today, and also some reasons that may have been uh, particular for the Thessalonians in their, in their setting 2,000 years ago. So why might we neglect hard work? Number one, the flesh. And in this sense, that phrase means the part of us that, that leans towards sin, our tendency towards sin. And our tendency is to a kind of lazy selfishness. <laughs> Siri gets her theology from me. But sometimes I have to... <laughs> no, Siri, sh- sh- stop. Now my phone is... Okay. <laughs> All right. If you, if you haven't seen the video of John Piper getting mad at his watch, his Apple watch, just go look it up. It's really, it's really classic, mid-sermon. Okay, um, what was I saying? Our tendency is toward lazy selfishness. Now, not everybody's tendency, right? Some people have the tendency to selfish workaholism. They can't do anything except work, no matter what it costs other people. So there are some people that have that tendency, but more people, more of us, have a tendency toward a lazy selfishness. You could see all that Proverbs says about this if you look up the word sluggard in the book of Proverbs. So we need God's Word and His Spirit at work in us. That's what God does when He saves us. He can change us. So even though our tendency may be to lazy selfishness, God, God can change that in our hearts so that we work hard out of love. Secondly, the curse. And we, uh, Eric did a great job of showing us this earlier in the service this morning. The effects of sin cause work to be painful. That's one of the words we saw in Genesis 3. Painful and frustrating and inefficient and complicated in ways that it was not before sin entered the world. God told Adam that the ground was cursed and that thorns and thistles were going to grow, that his work would be sweaty and painful. So we've got to remember that work existed before the fall, before sin, as a good gift from God. Work itself is not a result of sin. But sin makes work more painful and more frustrating, which makes the temptation to laziness stronger because work is sometimes really (laughs) annoying. Number three, cultural pressures. And I'm going to try to use one example from Thessalonica and one example from today. In Greek culture... At the time of this letter, manual labor was generally frowned upon. Not entirely. There were some exceptions to that. But in general, there was a bias against literally working with your hands. And some people might have refused to take a job, even though it was available, just because they felt like, I'm too good for that, you know, kind of job. It's, in, it's interesting that as, as well-educated as the Apostle Paul was, what was his job? It was leatherworking, tent-making. So the, the point is not, we're not saying here that manual labor is better. We're just illustrating the kind of cultural pressure that might keep some people from working if they feel like, ah, those jobs are below me. I'm not going to do any of those things. Let's use an example from our own society. In our American society, many people view work as this necessary evil that you endure so that you can play as much as possible. Work is bad. Play is good. 
And so the ultimate hero, I think for many people, and you could say this in some different ways, but the ultimate hero is the independently wealthy person who lives in luxury on his super yacht with no responsibilities to anyone or anything. He can just do whatever he wants. And that's like the most admired (laughs) person. And many people in our culture will just assume that's the right way to approach life. Work is bad. Play is good. And if you adopt that mentality, you will work as little as you can. So those are examples of the kind of cultural pressures that we might see. A fourth example that's specific to our setting is government benefits. Now, I do not mean that all government benefits are wrong. Our tax dollars benefit us in many ways that I'm very thankful for, from roads to the military to to ambulances and all sorts of things. And there are certain programs like unemployment benefits and workers' compensation that if they're administered wisely, um, maybe, maybe a good idea. So I'm not criticizing everyone who receives government benefits. We all receive lots of government benefits in various ways. But we know two things. One, politicians can offer unwise government benefits to try to buy votes. And that is damaging. And second of all, certain government benefits can be manipulated and abused so that taxpayers end up funding a whole bunch of laziness. And so that's what I'm referring to there. Number five, another reason some people might not work is misguided zeal. The New Testament gives us a number of examples of misguided zeal. Like, I'll give you examples from Galatians 2, 1 Timothy 4, and Colossians 2. Um, Christians who required circumcision and learning to live like a Jew. Christians who were forbidding marriage or requiring abstinence from certain foods or insisting on asceticism. Those things sounded really spiritual. They sounded really zealous for God. But it was a misguided zeal that didn't see the big picture. And so along those lines, it's not hard to imagine some people saying, I don't have time to get a job. I've got too much to pray for. You all go ahead and waste your day working. I'm going to be praying or reading my Bible or, or witnessing or whatever. It sounds good. And then at the end of the day, you want a meal on the table and a bed to sleep on and a roof over your head, and you want somebody to pay for those things. So misguided zeal has might have been a factor in Thessalonica. I don't know for sure. Number six, immature eschatology. Okay, the word eschatology just refers to teachings about last things when, when Jesus comes again in the future. So the idea is this. If Jesus could come again at any time, then we can't waste our time working. I mean, your house, your money in the bank, it's not going to do you any good when Jesus comes again. So let's just put all of our time into getting ready for Jesus to come again. And that might have been what was going on in Thessalonica. Again, we don't know for sure, but it's interesting that here in First and Second Thessalonians, in both letters, he talks about hard work, and in both letters, he addresses immature eschatology. And so it's possible that there were people in Thessalonica who were saying, Jesus is coming, no time to work, which they were right that Jesus is coming. We don't know when Jesus is coming again. They were wrong to say, therefore, I'm going to let somebody else pay all my bills. Uh, that was not loving or, or mature. The Bible teaches us to save for tomorrow, to prepare for the harvest, to not just live for the moment, but to live with a long-term perspective, and to know that Jesus could come again today. So be ready.
All right, the final factor in our list is brotherly love. Now, that sounds odd. Brotherly love motivates us to work hard. So how could brotherly love motivate us to not work hard? Well, uh, let's look back. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 10. This is from, from last Sunday. Remember, he says, That indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So he's talking about brotherly love that they were showing to Christians who didn't even live in the same city as them. And so last week we talked about, like, how did they do that? One of the ways might have been by showing hospitality to traveling Christians. But one good guess is that they were sending gifts to help. Because we know from another place in the New Testament that there were Christians in Macedonia, in their, their state or province, that were severely impoverished. So it may well be that this was a generous church. Remember, Thessalonica was a a big city, a successful city, right at the intersection of these trade routes. There may well have been some people with money there. And they may have been really generously giving to take care of other impoverished Christians. And so, if this was a generous church that loved to care for other Christians, then maybe there was a tendency for some people to be lazy because they knew their brothers and sisters would come through for them. They were taking advantage of brotherly love. Now, again, remember that there's nothing wrong with receiving help from the body of Christ. We will all have times when we will need that. There's nothing wrong with needing one another. But what we're talking about is the person who thinks, I can be lazy because they'll bail me out. I can waste money because somebody will bail me out. That's exploiting the generosity of our brothers and sisters. And that is also being a terrible testimony if non-Christians see that we're doing that to our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, earlier I talked about honorable and dishonorable independence. The honorable independence that says, Lord, if you'd let me work hard, I'd love to be able to provide and give. And the dishonorable independence that says, I don't need anybody else, I'll do it all myself. We could say the same thing about honorable dependence and dishonorable dependence. Honorable dependence says, sometimes I'm going to have to have help. I'm going to have to have people to pray for me. I'm going to have to have people to care for me. I, despite our bef- best efforts, sometimes God allows very hard times to come in our lives. Honorable dependence says, yeah, I might need my brothers and sisters. Dishonorable de- dependence says, I can just be lazy, waste money, do whatever I want, and other people will bail me out. That's ungodly and probably was going on in the church in Thessalonica. Okay, so that gives us hopefully a fuller picture of what was maybe going on there. So let's just read the text one more time from both last Sunday and this Sunday. Um, hopefully when we put it together now and read it, it will, it will make sense. So First Thessalonians 4 verse 9. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Okay, now I'd like us to finish up this morning by just skimming through the outline of a sermon that I preached last year. So if you turn to the inside of your notes, 
It was called the value of all of our work. If you didn't hear it or, or you want to go back and listen to it again or watch it, if you go to our church website and you just search for the word work, um, it should take you to that. At least it did for me yesterday as the very first result, and you can get the audio and the video. So let's, I'm not going to re-preach it. I just wanted to skim the outline because it so connects so directly to what we're talking about here. So first of all, all people were created to work. When God made this planet and Adam and Eve, he embedded into it all of this potential to be developed in a way that would bless people in amazing ways and bring him glory. And so from the very beginning, work was an essential part of what made humans human. Working this creation to develop it, all of its potential that God built into it, to bless one another, for God to be honored through that. Just imagine what it would be like if every person worked hard out of love for others, fully utilizing their skills and their gifts and their strengths and their experiences. What kind of world would we live in if that was our world? That's what God created in the beginning. So work, all people were created to work. Number two, work should be understood broadly. This is so important for Christian thinking about this. Wage-earning jobs are very important. We've talked about that this morning. But work is more than just wage-earning jobs. Work is caring for God's creation in all sorts of ways, like understanding it. That's mathematics and engineering and chemistry and all those things that study God's creation to understand it. And we all reap the benefits because of all the things that are possible through those sciences. Next, inventing. So taking our God-given creativity and inventing new things that that bless people, developing. You take a dirt plot and you turn it into a productive garden, raising, raising plants, raising animals, raising children, providing for those plants and animals and children (laughs) we're raising and other, other people. Relating. Boy, this is an interesting one. God didn't just create us to live in isolation, but in relationships, and relationships take work. And that is a God-honoring kind of work. Also, beautifying. Mowing the lawn is God-honoring work. Braiding your daughter's hair, writing music, governing because creation needs leadership and it needs structure, protecting everything from the military protecting a nation to you putting wax on your car to protect the surface. That's all part of protecting And then repairing, sin causes damage and decay. And so there's an endless amount of things to be repaired and patched up for for human flourishing. So that's just an example. Those are just samples. We could keep adding things to that list. But the point is that really everything we do to care for creation, for the good of people and for God's glory is biblical work that honors him. So then is everything work? No, because God also called us to rest and to leisure. Work, I say it this way, work is caring for God's creation. Rest is taking a necessary break from caring for God's creation because you're human and God made you so you have to rest. Leisure is enjoying God's creation. And rest and leisure can be disproportionate and ungodly, but in right proportion and for right reasons, they're, they're, God, they're just as God-honoring as work. All right, number four, we rebelled against God's call to care for his creation. 
Adam and Eve did that. Cain did that. The Thessalonians were doing that. We've done that too. Um, our flesh leans toward selfish laziness. Number five, work has became, become painful. That's the curse we talked about earlier. Number six, Jesus came to forgive us for our rebellion, restore us to God, and renew our opportunity to glorify God in every aspect of our work so that all of life matters now. And so here are some applications of those things. God's truth about work, number one, means that work is worship. We are doing it from the God who gave it, made it possible, and for him. Secondly, work is love, as we've emphasized this morning. Thirdly, God's truth gives guidance to those who are making career-related decisions. This is so awesome. Our culture just puts so much pressure on people that you've got to figure out your dream career that's going to perfectly fulfill you. And as Christians, we can say, God, how would you have me to work in your creation? How have you wired me? How have you uniquely designed me? How could I love you and love others through my work? Uh, it's so much healthier than trying to be that one lucky person who finds your one, you know, perfectly fulfilling a, a career. Number four, God's truth gives tremendous value to much of our lives. Um, if you're using the online handout, there's a typo there. It's Colossians chapter 3 that tells us that we can do all of our work unto the Lord, that we're truly working for him. You may have a job you really don't like. It's not satisfying. You're not working with people you enjoy working with. And Colossians 3, 23 and 24 tells you, you can do that for the Lord and God will receive it as if you're working for him. That is a beautiful thing. Number five, God's truth about work is dignifying. We noted earlier that societies tend to honor some work and despise others. God's truth dignifies all kinds of work, unless it's, you know, promoting sin or evil. Number six, God's truth about work is freeing. You don't have to live up to the world's expectations. Just honor the Lord with your hard work. Number seven, it's motivating. I love this one. When you realize that when you see work broadly, as we've been talking about, and you realize how much work honors the Lord, then you look around and you see opportunities for God-honoring work everywhere. I mean, this is going to sound tremendously small, but you walk out of here this morning and you see trash on the ground. And you can think to yourself, this is God's creation. (laughs) I can pick that up. (laughs) And that would be a tiny little bit of God-honoring work. And when you start thinking that way, you realize that everything in life Just everywhere you turn, everything you're doing can be this God-honoring work. That's beautiful. You go out to mow the lawn and you're like, let's beautify God's creation a little bit. You go to braid your daughter's hair. You go to try to, uh, you know, fix that thing that needs fixed. You're trying to help your company improve in this area. You just see, man, I could just honor the Lord all the way around. It's, It's wonderful. Number eight, God's truth confronts laziness. That's what we studied today. Number nine, gives guidance to those who are able to earn more income than needed. Work to give. If God puts you in a position where you can earn more money than you need to live on, I think you could say he's given you the spiritual gift of giving. He's put you in a position to give. Number, I mean, we all give, but you know what I'm saying there. Number 10, God's truth gives guidance to those who have the opportunity to provide work for others. When you know how valuable work is, what an exciting thing it is to be in a position where you can help other people get work. Number 11, it gives a new perspective on your role in the local church. Um, You come in on a Sunday morning, and as is often the case, you might notice that the rows are like, (laughs) they're all crooked, and you go to work straightening rows. What is that? That's that's work. 
It's beautiful, God-honoring work. Just the, so many ways. And, and remember, as we said earlier, relating is work. So church services end, and you try to strike up a conversation with that person and show your care for them. That's God-honoring work to seek to relate to them. Number 12, it integrates with the importance of the Great Commission. I don't have time to talk about that right now. Number 13, God's truth about work allows you to rest. Work is supposed to be a big part of our lives, but not all of our lives. When we know that work is from God, we know that we don't have to be God and try to be God. We can rest. So you can hear details about all those things if you go back to that sermon. But I just wanted to skim through those because they, they complement 1 Thessalonians 4 so well. Those who were choosing laziness needed to think biblically about work instead of just giving into their flesh and working as little as they possibly could. The, it's, the, it's the biblical doctrine of work that motivates us to live quietly, to mind your own fears, and to work with your own hands because we love people and we love God. And it can be painful and it can be difficult and it can be frustrating. This doesn't mean that every job is fun. And yet as we walk with the Lord, even difficult work can be joyful because we're doing it for Him. So I'd like to finish um, with an unusual, a little bit of an unusual charge and benediction from Acts chapter 20. These are Paul's final words to the pastors of the church he had planted in Ephesus. And he's talking about his own ministry there in the city of Ephesus with that church family. And he refers to his hard work to support himself and his team. But in these words, he gives us both charge and a blessing um, as as we go forward. And he gets the blessing straight from Jesus. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to read this. And then uh, 10 to 12s, you'll come back here for Bible study. Teens, you'll come back here for Bible study. And adults, we'll, we'll, start, um, we'll start at about 10.50. If you're watching live this morning, um, be aware Bible study will start earlier, about 10.50 instead of uh, 11 o'clock. Father, we thank you for the gospel, the good news that we just celebrated this morning that you sent a Savior for sinners like us who conquered everything that we might become your forgiven children. We rejoice in Christ and pray that you would help us to live a life of hard work, not because we're doing it for ourselves or because we're trying to be God, but because you created us to bless others and honor you through our work. So I pray that you would renew that zeal in our hearts today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Acts 20, verses 33 through 35. Paul says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands, my own hands, ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. So there's the charge for us. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Amen.